Welcome to Farcast. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We have a terrific Farcast for you this week. Markets have been a little bit shaky on news of China and perhaps a slowing in the global economy. Uh, and we've got uh, we've got the experts coming in to tell us exactly what we should be thinking about going forward, what's happened today in trading, but really what we need to be thinking about going ahead. Uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress will be with us again this week, of course. We're going to be talking with Dan not only about issues domestic and what's been going on on Capitol Hill and the infighting back and forth, but we're also going to talk to him about China. And Dan has tremendous expertise in China uh, and lived there and speaks Mandarin and has an advanced degree from Georgetown University uh, strategically uh, and, and essentially did kind of intelligence work in China. So fascinating <laughs> to talk to Dan tonight. But first, uh, we're going to uh, talk to Stephanie Link, who has been with us before. And thank you for your notes about Stephanie. And I agree, of course, one of the better guests we've had on the Farcast. Remember, though, that on the Farcast, we believe that money is hard to make. We believe that old-fashioned research, hard work, discipline, and patience are the keys to successful investing. And Farr's rule, uh, probably number one, is that emotion is the foe of the long-term investor. These have been perilous times over the past couple of months because emotion has been with us at every turn. Whether you have been thinking you are scared and should sell everything or whether everything's cheap and you're feeling strong and you should buy everything, I haven't talked, frankly, to too many people who've suggested they should be buying everything. Lots of people have been saying, I don't want to buy. I, should, I think I should be selling. What do you think, Michael? And while I have my thoughts, and I'm sure you do too, let's get a real expert. Stephanie Link is the head of global equities research at Nuveen. I mean, she is one of the leading minds and voices on Wall Street today, a graduate from Boston College. She's chairperson for the Investment Advisory Council at the Basking Ridge Presbyterian Church, an investment professional with over 20 years of experience, even though she looks like she's 29 years old. I'm serious about that. I've been on the desk with her on CNBC, 29 years old top. Stephanie, welcome back to the Farcast. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. So tell us, Stephanie, uh, we had kind of a tumultuous market today, but really it was the first down day after a few real, a pretty good week last week. What are you thinking as we start the new year? Yeah, today was really dominated by all of a sudden people waking up and realizing that the international markets, the international economies around the world are slowing. Uh, the IMF revised their numbers. China had some weak data over the weekend. Um, I'm kind of perplexed that people really sold off the market hard on this because we've been talking about it. Well, Michael, you and I have been talking about it on TV for over a year. We knew 2019 would be much slower growth versus 2018. You simply don't have the fiscal stimulus tailwinds that you had this time a year ago. So I, I guess I'm a bit surprised at the reaction only because 
Multiples are still quite cheap. We've gone from 19 times to 14 times forward estimates on the S&P 500. We're getting a few companies reporting earnings, and I was very encouraged by the banks last week and how they responded to pretty good numbers. Not fabulous, but pretty good numbers. All those stocks rallied nicely. Um, I think the, the, the message here is that some stocks, some sectors have rallied substantially off their December lows, and maybe you had a little bit of a give back to some of those sectors today based on the slower growth. But I don't find that really new news, quite frankly. I'm looking at areas and, and sectors and stocks to, to maybe buy if they get hit again. You know, uh, you're so nice because you say surprised, and I find myself getting really frustrated with the market <laughs> because, I mean, we've seen, we've seen uh, Japan slowing. We've seen China slowing for a year. I mean, part of the reason that the president is waging the trade war now is that China is in a weaker position than they've been in a long time. You've got Brexit and a U.K. weakness. I mean, the, the U.S. has been the strongest house on the block for quite a while, I think. But that markets suddenly, you know, say, geez, we're surprised things are slowing down globally. I mean, this is this is as old news as that we could have seen for a while. So I, I get frustrated when the market has tantrums over things that have been like constant companions for quite a while. So you and I have I been talking. Agree. About, I completely you? agree with you. And I was looking, I was, I, I, there were some stocks that I bought in December into that swoon um, that was just horrific. And, and I had some, and I was just looking at them this morning. Um, some of these stocks, Michael, that I bought in December, they're up 25, 30% from those levels. Fabulous. So, I mean, I, but I, I actually feel like I get it. So I get why people may want to take some gains, but I think it's so short-term in nature. Earnings are just beginning. Let's get, a, let's get um, um, an understanding of what companies are saying and feeling and, and, and the guidance. Now, look, I know we got Apple. That was disappointing. We got Stanley Black & Decker disappointing, FedEx disappointing. But, again, you had some pretty darn good banks. You've had some pretty good consumer names. So we're early on. Let's, let's wait for earnings. Let's wait for guidance. And then we can really make an educated, more educated decision on what to do, where to be aggressive, and when. Okay, so you just said a couple of things that I, that, I, that I love. And ladies and gentlemen, if you listen to Stephanie Link, you'll find out why she's the tops, one of the top people in our entire industry, okay? What she just said was she, when everybody else was scared and running for the doors, she bought in, uh, in December. So, t Stephanie, tell us about how you felt in December when things were really cratering, coming into the Christmas break, and why you bought then? Why? That means everybody else was selling. Why were you buying? Well, it was, it, I always find myself, um, when, I, when I try to buy into weakness, it always feels terrible. I mean, really, it's the hardest awful. thing to Doesn't, do. Awful. It feels uh, awful. Right? Yeah. You're, I'm, I'm under my desk, and I'm pressing the button, and I'm like, oh, God, please, please. And it's not the fundamentals that I question. It's I question the sentiment. I question liquidity. I question people get nervous and sell first, ask questions later. And quite frankly, Michael, you know there was a lot of uncertainty, and there still is a lot of uncertainty in the markets with regards to yeah. trade and the Fed and the government shutdown. So it was easy to sell and say in December and say, you know what, I've had enough. It's been a hard year. I just felt like whenever I can get – a blue chip company, number one in their industry, with a fabulous management team, good balance sheet, dividends, buybacks, market share gain, gainer, whenever that kind of company is on sale in a pretty significant way, 
you got to pick. you got to buy a little bit. And you're not, you don't have to buy a ton of it because you can average cost down because I can't time any better than anyone else. But it felt so extreme no. when things had fallen so much. And I thought, I'm going to buy. Now, at the same time, now that they're up 25 30%, you can certainly trim if you want, if you're short term. But for me, I feel like we've got a long way to go. And these stocks are still very, very much on sale. And, and, I, and I bought all, all over the place. It was like I bought some energy. I bought some financials. I bought some consumer staples. I bought some health care. So it wasn't just narrowed to one particular sector. It's diversification. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of my favorite lines that I use over and over again on TV, Stephanie, and feel free to steal it if, you, if, you, if you'd like. But uh, <laughs> when you're in the fish market, you know, you ignore the screaming and yelling and pay attention to the price of fish. And that's what you have to do in the stock market, right? I mean, you know, that's what you have to do. There's always screaming and yelling in the stock market. And I will tell you that I also bought in my in my personal account, I'd been sitting on a, a lot of cash uh, for a couple of different reasons. I had some other things going on. And I looked at it and I agree with you. When I put it to work, I was thinking, oh, crap, I hope I'm right. God, I hope I'm right. But look, this stuff is down 20 to 30 percent. When it's down 20 to 30 percent, the rule is you buy it and and maybe I'll buy more later. But 10 years from now, I'll be glad I did. And, you know, I can't I can't tell you what I did in my personal account, but I can. We did publish our top 10 stocks for 2019. They're available on our website at uh, farmiller.com. And and uh they look pretty good, too, if anybody wants to look at the list. I will also tell you that my list for 2017 looked like a dog's breakfast. So uh, <laughs> we have good years and bad years. And I bought them for the same reasons. You know, I thought they looked good. But, uh, you know, Stephanie, you said down at 14 times earnings. We were at 19 times earnings a year ago. At 14 times earnings, what does that kind of tell you about downside risk when you buy today? What is that? What are you thinking about? Well, I think um, I, I, go, I always go back to earnings and how confident or not confident I am in the earnings visibility. And clearly, we have a cloud uh, because, uh, over earnings and over the economy and over the growth rate because of the economy, because we have so many moving pieces, with, again, with trade, Fed, government shutdown, global slowdown. So where I try to get com- where I, what I try to do is I try to get comfortable. I kind of do a worst case scenario on earnings. Overall, I I thought le- this time last year I thought 19 earnings would be about up nine ten percent. I have now revised that to maybe five percent, and I still I feel pretty good about that five percent. I think I'm being sort of co- conservative uh, there, even if it's four to five percent. Um, it's still growth, and Michael, and it and and so. It, yeah, the market is at and that's okay, right? Times. I mean, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, because you know why? Because I mean, because the market's trading at fourteen times a five percent earnings growth rate. It's not fourteen times a ten percent earnings growth rate, and that's what's so important. You right. have to be confident and comfortable with the E. And now, not every company has visibility, but I feel like there are plenty out there that I could pick and choose from, like you did in like like you did in December, like I did in December high quality when you get the number one guy in the industry yes. on sale. Wow. I mean, for the yes. long term, it's just it, you don't have to go out the risk spectrum. You don't have to buy high beta. You've got it right in your right, right staring at you. High quality on sale. And, and that's kind of my 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 thing. So let me share a little bit of Stephanie's and my math when ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about this sort of thing. But 
Um, if you have, if Stephanie's right, and I agree with her, by the way, uh, I think 5% earnings growth this year. So 5% earnings growth, if the price to earnings multiple doesn't move, if it just stays at 14 times, and that's on the low end of scale, that's lower than the historical average. So we're down a lot. So it's there's less downside risk because it's already dropped a bunch. It was 19. It's already down. So if you get that five times earnings, if, if we just stay flat at 14 times earnings, what people are willing to pay for dollar earnings, and you get a 2% dividend, 5% earnings plus 2% dividend, you've got a 7% return for the year. That ain't bad. And for some yeah. of Stephanie's companies, Stephanie, you know, if some companies, though, you have better visibility or I, some maybe we're just kidding ourselves, but I don't think so. Some companies, you have a lot better visibility into earnings than you do others. I mean, uh, I, anybody can get subject to a, to a really bad quarter. But um, are there any would you tell us, are there any industries where you feel a little more comfortable about the earnings power going into 19 industries even? Yeah, I, I will say this, where expectations are low and valuations are very, very cheap, and I see operating leverage, meaning you have cost opportunities, and so if you get just a little bit of top-line growth, you'll see a big earnings boost. I think you've got to say the way the financials reacted yes, uh, last week was very impressive. I also think consumer discretionary, they've come in quite a bit, um, and, and I think the consumer is still very strong. It's 70% of our U.S. economy is the consumer. And when I look at those job numbers and the gradual wage growth numbers and what they're spending, what consumers are actually spending on. Retail sales rose 3.4% on a core basis last month, and they spent it across the board. I look at some of these stocks that have gotten hit 15 20%. I think consumer discretionary will yep. do fine. Yeah. And I like, techno- I like secular technology. I know um, it's a hard sector because it's crowded, but I still feel like you've got to go for some secular stories. Cloud, for one, obviously, is a very, very big theme. AI is a big theme. Some of these semiconductor com- quality semiconductor companies have get- gotten hammered 30 40 50%. So I think you can pick and choose. Yep. While I might not have a ton of visibility on the semiconductor side, I do know that valuation at some point is going to matter. Yeah, it, it, valuation matters, and what you pay for a stock will will so determine your long-term returns. If you're yes. buying stocks at 19 times earnings, you are. I mean, you, you can your upside is limited from day one. If you buy stocks at 14 times earnings, you have greater upside. It's it really is that that simple. What do you think? I, we've got to go, Stephanie, and you are such a fabulous guest. But can uh, you. what do you think about the staples, consumer staples? So here's an interesting one. Um, I, I, I own P&G because they're doing a lot of great things. But the stock went from 70 to 90 from May until yep. today, 70 to 90. It's yes. got three upgrades, and it trades at 23 times forward for 2% growth, um, organic revenue growth. I, I actually think you can get a, 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 a better risk-reward on some of the restaurant stocks, on some of the discretionary okay. stocks. I just feel right. like maybe your risk will work on some health care stocks, quality health care stocks. I think there's better. If you want defense, go health care. You know, do not, don't chase. Just give yourself a chance to buy these things a little bit cheaper. But there are some ones that P&G are P&G was a fear trade, we'll don't you think? I'm you sorry? Think P&G was a fear trade. P&G, a fear a, trade. Yeah. 
I mean, look, it, it, you know, he's doing all the right things, but it, it's expensive. So just be disciplined. Staples yeah. growing 2%, trading at 23 times forward estimates. The overall market's at 14 times. That's not the greatest risk reward. They report tomorrow. I might look foolish for telling people to take some gains, but I would. I would take some, if it's up tomorrow, I would take some gains. Don't be greedy. Okay. We're going to go through, look forward to 2019. If I look at your 5% growth number, you, you agree with about a 7% year here? I think so. I don't think that's anything to complain about, by the way. I think that's fine. No, I agree. Yeah. I think it's just terrific. I said on I said on Power Lunch the other day, I said, you know, I think that this report, I thought that the beige book was okay. But I said, look, Tyler, okay is okay. Okay is no yeah. reason to go jump off the plank. This is okay. It's not bad. Uh, you know, so okay is okay. Don't listen to the ads on TV. So, Okay, okay. Seven uh, percent over the long term. If you got it every year, compounded, pretty darn nice. Hell yes. Okay. Final question for you, Stephanie, and I thank you so much for being with us. When do we have a recession? When do you think things start to slow? Uh, twenty twenty earliest. Um, I have a hard time thinking we're going to go from three and a half percent growth last year to two and a half percent growth this year to negative growth, unless you have a policy error or unless you do not fix trade. So those are two wild cards, but I, I don't think you get it this year. I think the consumer still has too much momentum. And I like the fact that you have lower interest rates, lower oil, mortgages have come down, you have commodities have come down. These are all good things for the consumer. Ladies and gentlemen, that may be the best advice we get on the forecast all year long. Harry, wow. make sure we put that in the can. We're going to want to bring that out. Stephanie Link Absolutely. is the head of global equities research at Nuveen. She manages a large cap U.S. Stra- uh, equity strategy for Nuveen's largest affiliate, TIA Investments. She went to Boston College, so how could she go <laughs> wrong? I mean, you know, <laughs> Jesuit train. Stephanie Link, thank you for being on the forecast. Thank you so much, Michael. Hope to see you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come right back on the forecast with uh, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Stay with us. We're going to be right back. You're listening to Forecast. Do you have an upcoming function and need a dynamic speaker to engage your audience? You've enjoyed listening to the forecast, so why not invite Michael Farr to speak at your next event? In addition to hosting the Farcast and serving as president of the advisory firm Farr, Miller, and Washington, Michael is the longest-serving paid contributor to CNBC. He is recognized by audiences, and his presentations on the economic outlook are always well-received. Michael has recently appeared at such venues as the Economic Club of Memphis, the University of Delaware, Matheson Financial Conference, and the YPO-WPO Economic Summit. Add your event to the growing list of organizations who have been informed and captivated by Michael's insights. For more information, or to book Michael for an upcoming event, please email me, Harry Jennings, at hjennings at farmiller.com, or call me at 202-530-5608. Now more with Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. We are, uh, I'm today uh, recording from Naples, Florida. It was chilly here today. People on the East Coast still hate me. It was about 60, 55, 60 when I woke up this morning. Uh, and 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 so everybody can hate me, but this is a much better place to be. I feel very bad for my family and friend and freezing up north. Um, that was a terrific segment. Um, uh, that was a terrific segment that we just had, and I learned so much. Um, she, Stephanie Link is just one of the best people I ever get to talk to. Another one of the best people I get to talk to, and you know this, ladies and gentlemen, from the Farcast, 
is Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. He is their senior strategist. Dan has an amazing uh, background um, in, in China studies. He speaks Mandarin, uh, and he knows Capitol Hill inside and out. So, Dan, welcome back to the Farcast. Good to be back, Michael, and uh, glad you're not joining us in the uh, the single-digit wind chills we had here. Well, Friday, I'll be back Friday just for a dinner Friday night, and then I'm coming back to Florida Saturday as fast as I can. But uh, I, you know, uh, some 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 responsibilities call. Uh, Dan, we are uh, we had the president come on air uh, over the weekend with uh, a big statement, an important statement to make about the shutdown. And I think before he was off the air, uh, Speaker Pelosi made it very clear that there was nothing big about his announcement, that there was nothing new about his announcement. What's going on with the shutdown? What was the president trying to accomplish? And is there any end to this stupid thing? Well, I think if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it's that the president is seeing that he is uh, increasingly bearing the blame for this, even among some of the supporters uh, in his base. So that's where that firewall that really, uh, if that's breached, that wakes him up. And I think what he was trying to do over the weekend was uh, put forward something that the, uh, to make it look like the Democrats were the ones being obstinate. Uh, but so much of the public opinion has, is moving and is turning against him on this, um, as well as the fact uh, that, you know, as we approach this, we're now getting to the, the second pay cycle where about 800,000 people are not going to have paychecks. Uh, and that's starting to have a, a knock-on effect in communities around the country. It's not just inside the Beltway bubble, uh, like many of his advisors and, and conservative talk show folks uh, once tried to espouse. So, Dan Mahaffey, tell me, what was the president looking for from the Supreme Court that he thought would be helpful to this to this negotiation? He wanted the Supreme Court to validate the idea that the president has the power to unilaterally change the terms of the DACA deal, the, the Dreamers uh, legislation that protects them. And that would force Congress to say, OK, we have to, uh, in effect, deal with the president on the Dreamers to be able to protect them. Uh, so far, the courts are protecting their status in the U.S., so that's up in the air until the Supreme Court decides, but they're not going to move quickly on that. So they're not really giving him, no pun intended, another trump card he can play in these negotiations. They seem very dug in. Both sides dug in. And then I'm hearing behind the scenes, maybe not. Maybe they are moving a little bit closer together. Have you heard what's going on? What can you tell us mm-hmm. is really going on? And what's what's going to get tr- the president or uh, the, the speaker and uh, Senator Schumer to come together, what 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 creates pain for each side to get them to move to the middle? So right now, I think what you start to see for uh, both sides are dug in, and certainly the the announcement over the weekend, the idea of uh, trying to exchange something temporary for something permanent was going to be a non-starter. Uh, and frankly, the public is starting to look at these people and say, if you know, if, if these are our Solomons, I'm not letting my babies anywhere near them. Um, but beyond that. Uh, we have this sort of back and forth, and I think the, the plight of workers, the impact we're starting to see on business, uh, Delta Airlines themselves saying that this cost is costing them $25 billion uh, in uh, lost revenue, excuse me, $25 million. Uh, beyond that, you have uh, the total impact on the economy, 
Uh, the spending of federal workers, some estimate that the the lost spending power of these 800,000 federal workers is about $5 billion a month when it comes to their mortgage payments, uh, other consumer demands. So that's starting to affect, I think, the overall economic picture. Uh, the president's looking at his own approval numbers. That's pushing him. Democrats are also wondering how long can they, uh, you know, make a point of federal workers, uh, you know, being out of work while they're still uh, dug in. So there's going to be, I think, more and more of the conversations we're seeing among senators. I think it's interesting to note that Mitch McConnell is allowing multiple votes coming up, uh, even though he said he wasn't going to allow show votes previously. What kind of votes? Well, he wasn't going to allow uh, show votes, so sort of political statements or you know the, the kinds of things that were coming from the House that would have been dead on arrival in the White House. Uh, but at least we're now yep. seeing... Uh, there's going to be a vote on the president's package and then another package that would is a Democrat's alternative that would reopen government until February 8th. Uh, those two are going to be voted on. Uh, I know the president, the whip count does not look good for the president's. I don't know if the pushing, you know, reopening it until the 8th might have some appeal for senators who just want to get uh, get things open while a more in-depth negotiation takes place. You know, and I think, Dan, it's not only the 800,000 people who are out of work. I mean, so, and, and when we say 800,000, of course, I'm thinking almost a million people out of work. But it's it's what everybody else is seeing when we watch our government react to these 800,000 people. It's, it's still uh, somehow 800,000 people are allowed to be, you know, Job in this tug of war between, uh, you know, uh, God and the devil, and you pick which one is which. But um, you, you still have to feel a little bit sorry for Job. And there's also a sense, I think, of there but for the grace of God go I, that I could have ended up as Job. I could easily be one of those 800,000 people feeling like nobody gives a crap about me. So there's a, there's a I think that there are, not only are the eight hundred thousand dollars, eight hundred thousand people suffering, but there's a lot of the rest of us who who are starting to feel bad, saying, "Well, if they don't care about them, why would they care about me?" When does this hit a political nerve, Dan Mahaffey, to where somebody steps up and says, "This has got to stop because it's in my self-interest as a politician to stop it because I'm not going to get my ass elected again." Yeah, I think that's starting to come through. I think you see it where I know the the advertisement in the newspapers this weekend, here in Washington at least, that Kraft Foods was opening up a, a food bank grocery for federal workers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of matters, too, of like looking at uh, airports and uh, that impact there. Uh, communities where fe- they're highly reliant on federal workers to uh, you know, have there also their spending in restaurants, shops, toy stores like that. So there's those knock-on effects. And, and, and it's also, frankly, unbecoming as a country. I think we all start to, to feel that when we see this. Um, and also knowing, too, that there's probably people in Moscow and Beijing who are, who are really enjoying uh, the Americans who claim to be the, the leader of the free world behaving in this way. Okay, so Dan, before as we come to the end of this segment, tell me how this ends, when it ends. Does the president declare a state of emergency? 
does he do something else using some other types of powers? If he does that, is that kind of a win for the uh, Democrats, or can he declare victory? Tell me how this ends and when. Yeah, I think we, if we're going to see an end that at least makes us feel better about what's happened at the end of this, it's going to be uh, something coming, a deal that comes from some moderate senators in the Senate working on both sides, and and everyone kind of just realizes in Congress that they are a the Article One branch of government, and it's time for them to send something to the White House. Uh, to end this and that not, you know, let's not have the perfect for either side be the enemy of the good. Um, when it comes to the emergency declaration, that's certainly one way for the president to move. But I think at the end of the day, if that happens, no one wins because all we're doing is, is really just trampling on the concept of separation of powers and the idea that the, the president of the United States is not a monarch. So hard to watch our elected officials engaging in, into this in this kind of really unseemly battle where it's hard to see a winner on either side uh, in in the long run at all. I mean, even if it's just this political battle, uh, it, it's hard to see a winner. It's hard to see how this works for the president, uh, hard how to see how it works uh, for Congress. But uh, my friend Dan Mahaffey and if we're going uh, to, is... And if uh, we're going to doing NAFTA infrastructure. we got to think about how this sets the table for all those things, too. For NAFTA and infrastructure. Oh, we do, don't we, to see what can be passed and what can be gotten through Congress at all. Yeah. So there is yeah. a lot at stake here. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come right back with our third section of the forecast. Special treat tonight, more Mahaffey. More Mahaffey, more better is what you need to be thinking. We're going to be talking about China, a special area of expertise for Mr. Mahaffey. What's going on with the trade war? What happened last week on Friday? What happened with Larry Kudlow with his stop start today when we come back on the Farcast? You're listening to Farcast. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We'd like to introduce a new daily show for you, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Every morning before the sun rises, we bring you markets, commodities, and futures. Just the facts to start your day. The Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or your favorite platform. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. You're listening to Farcast. Now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. It is a great privilege, ladies and gentlemen, to have uh, be able to join you in your cars and in your earbuds, homes, offices, on your workouts. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your notes. Thank you for your questions and your emails. For our third segment tonight, we're going to be talking about trade. We're going to be talking with our friend Dan Mahaffey, uh, who is uh, from the center of the study of the presidency and Congress, a uh, senior strategist there. Uh, Dan was uh, went to Georgetown University where he studied government. He got his master's in interna- international relations and national security studies. He studied in China at East China Normal University. He has a certificate in Mandarin and Chinese studies. So when we're talking China and we're talking government, uh, he also was uh, spent some time on Capitol Hill. He is an insider's insider. Dan Mahaffey, thank you very much for staying with us on the Farcast. We saw last last week markets started to trade up on some sense that there was going to be 
some kind of progress in these trade negotiations with China. And it makes sense that somehow they would try to come together, and yet over the weekend and then today, it all seemed to fall apart. What's going on? Why can't these guys seem to get together? Uh, and will they make any progress here? I think the best way to describe it is the – I'll actually hearken back to a quick story of one I studied in China. Um, and one of the things I did in Chinese business studies, I was in Shanghai, and I visited the joint venture Volkswagen-Shanghai Motor Corporation plant there, where uh, Volkswagen, obviously very excited about entering the Chinese market, opened a plant there, uh, and I toured the factory. And what you saw was much like a, a state-of-the-art factory where – uh, the chassis, the assembly, all that took place until the car on the assembly line would disappear into a, a fenced-off, locked area where the Germans would then put in the guts, the high technology, and all the stuff that they didn't want their joint venture partners to copy in there. So you imagine an assembly line, but then that inefficiency of moving it into a, a sequestered area for the high technology. And that's, I think, what is happening here with these trade talks, where we are able to handle the stuff like agriculture, raw manufacturing, materials, energy, exports like that. But when it comes down to the advanced technology, intellectual property protection, uh, forced technology transfer, and access to services and financial markets, uh, there's still a lot of daylight between both sides. Tell us, Dan, how unfair trade is. We've we've heard about the Chinese stealing intellectual property, uh, stealing technology, violating most all of the trade agreements with fair fair abandon. Uh, how bad is it? And do you have any examples uh, that you can share with us? I think it's it's you. One, I would tell anyone if you want to look at the uh, intellectual property theft and the corporate espionage. Uh, look to the indictments. You can go to the Justice Department website and read them related to various cases, Huawei, uh, various microchip companies, and you'll see that there is no difference in China largely between the uh, the state espionage like the CIA uh, compared to corporate espionage. So imagine if the uh, if the CIA was helping Coke steal Pepsi's formula or vice versa. Um, those are examples of that uh, hand-in-glove relationship between their government intelligence and their private sector. But even when it comes to playing by the rules, I'll use the example of credit cards, where the WTO had told them that uh, in 2013 to open the credit card market to American Express, Visa, and MasterCard. It's 2019, and we still haven't reached a, a full deal. Uh, the approval process is slow as molasses. Uh, American Express is just getting in there with a 50-50 joint venture, uh, and their homegrown company, China Union Pay, uh, has done just fine uh, in terms of building their own domestic market. And you can now see at stores around the U.S. where some of them you see a sign for China Union Pay, which is basically a state monopoly uh, credit card company. So, okay, so the, the theft has been going on. And how can somehow the use of tariffs uh, result in China giving us somehow what, – what assurances could China give the U.S. that they're going to stop stealing from us? I mean, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? Are you, are, are, are you guys, guys going to quit stealing? Are you guys going to now behave 
by the rules, what assurances can we get, given the pressures of tariffs, that could satisfy you, Dan? Well, I think, one, I would like to see a little bit more uh, sang-froid from American business leaders, that the, the, the China market is not going to be their growth salvation, um, and that they need to start looking to markets like India, sub-Saharan Africa, other places if they're going to find uh, developing world growth, that the, the, the Chinese market is not going to be the panacea uh, that solves all their uh, consumer demand issues as Europe, the U.S. age, or we don't upgrade our phones as much, etc. Um, beyond that, I also think we're starting to understand that, uh, you know, and particularly understanding that China is now in a very transitory phase, that they want to move from being a, a simple manufacturer to a, a world leader. Uh, but that means they're in a in a sort of trying to merge off the highway and how do they make this transition at a time when we're saying, okay, we want to we want to buy less, and oh, by the way, we're not quite sure about the security of Chinese uh, high technology network equipment, or the reliability of Chinese aircraft, uh, or the cybersecurity of Chinese rail cars, things like that, uh, where they need to be. Uh, able to compete fairly on the global stage. If there's a Chinese company that's transparent, willing to trade at market price, respect partnerships and the rule of law, we should welcome those. Uh, But at the same time, we need to be very, uh, very strict and very hard on those cases to at least in a sense, provide some guardrails as they make this transition to the next phase of their economy. Are those sanctions, though, Dan Mahaffey, enforceable when you're standing on U.S. shore? Well, I think we we have to be careful because we do have the ability to use the fact that the the U.S. dollar and U.S. financial markets uh, are important for any company that wants to do business. Um, If we overuse that, I think companies are going to start to try and denominate their trade or financial dealings in other currencies and and bypass U.S. financial markets. Uh, But that said, uh, no country uh, wants to be in this position of choosing between the U.S. and China. Uh, So you have to have, uh, again, frameworks, and then it's more enforceable when we bring our allies on board. I I would like to see the EU closely involved in these consultations. As a matter of fact, at the WTO, the, uh, the EU, uh, filed on forced technology transfer recently, and they did an extremely thorough job of listing all the laws, actually a far more thorough job than the U.S. representatives. Uh, and it was interesting to see that shared interest that we could have with Europe, Japan, Australia, even Latin American company, countries who are tired of being, uh, and, and Africa too, tired of being exploited by China for natural resources. I'll tell you, I've known Bob Lighthizer for years. I've known him personally for years. Uh, I've had all sorts of wide-ranging discussions with Bob. This is an exceptionally bright, clear-thinking uh, uh, professional. I mean, a real pro's pro. Uh, I, I, he's been sort of behind the scenes, even though everybody kind of knows who he is as the U.S. trade representative. But um, I, I have great confidence in Bob's ability to get it done if anybody frankly, can can get it done. But what you talked about there, Dan, was sounded a, a bit at odds with what's been going on, meaning we, you were saying that in order to keep things enforceable and fair, we have to have something of a consortium with all of our trading partners, 
so that they can agree that everybody's got to behave this way and China or other, you know, bad behaviors uh, can't find a backdoor into trade, that we present a unified front. But you've also said that the president struggles with these sort of multilateral agreements. Is that true on trade as well? It is true on trade, and, and here's where I don't get the administration's position, but it's, I guess it comes from his uh, you know, background as a, a Queens real estate guy where it's, uh, you know, let me show the bully how tough I am by punching my best friend. Um, that doesn't work <laughs> on the international stage. And uh, what, you know, and I think it's one of those things, too, now where at least I think we're seeing the right thing where – uh, let's acknowledge these Canadians who are basically being held hostage by the Chinese government, that we need to be uh, close with our Canadian friends as much as uh, President Trump seems to have a visceral dislike of Canada. Um, beyond that, I, I look, I think Lighthizer has a very uh, thoughtful approach about how the trade relationship needs to be rebalanced, but it's never going to be the type of full-on decoupling that uh, that Peter Navarro and others in the administration want. And I think the problem well, at the very thank top God of the for White that. House is when I mean, that's it, just stupidly and, impractical. Navarro's stupidly impractical. I'm sorry, Peter, but you are. Yeah. Yeah, and it comes to the, the point where at the top of the – at the White House, when the policy seems to be uh, whoever spoke to the president last is the policy, that makes it hard for us building the consortium on one side – and the Chinese to decide whether they actually need to uh, understand that there's a, a give and take in these negotiations or they can just wait out the chaos of American politics. Perfect segue into my next question for you, Dan. We just saw China GDP growth as low as it's been in almost 30 years. Uh, there really are slowing. Is China's e economy vulnerable now to these tariffs? Does the president have China just where he wants them? Or how does how do you spent a lot of time in China and studied China? How do the Chinese feel about where they are? Do they feel weak and vulnerable? And how will they get through this? Give us the shrink give us the shrink, the, the psychological side. The shrink the Chinese actually are always going to be uh, very proud of what their country's accomplished and when you look at their development and how many people they've brought out of poverty, I would agree with a certain pride to that, the infrastructure they've built. Uh, but they also know that they're reaching uh, a certain point of overcapacity, that environmental degradation has reached its limit, uh, that there's really no more miles of highway or high-speed rail that you can build uh, that has a reasonable return on investment. So they're trying to make this transition to be a technology leader. And that is all fueled by a memory of thinking that, look, we're China, we invented the compass, we invented gunpowder, and then through our own backwards ways, we watched the West use those things to subjugate uh, China, and they took it to Japan. Japan embraced modernity and inflicted so much abuse on China. Those are all things that are very palpable in the Chinese memory. And I think what we're seeing with their economy has less to do with our tariffs right now and the sense of, this development phase is running out of steam. We're seeing debt and other uh, factors like that start to pile up, particularly local level or off-the-book private debt. And all those things are uh, questioning what is the – how can the party, which has basically more control over an economy than any other government 
uh, I think has ever had in a in a society that marriage of of capitalism with uh, command uh, communist theory. How do they manage this transition to the next economic stage uh, when the world is also now looking at China less as a opportunity and more as a threat? Okay. So, Dan, does this get done this year? Where do we end up on this trade discussion dispute this year? That's my final question. So give me a give me a very thoughtful answer to tell our listeners what they can expect. Yeah. Trade discussion, I think we're going to have at least something that allows a uh, a calming of tensions. I think the president uh, is very focused. President Trump's very focused on the market, wants to see that. I think the Chinese leadership understands that they're uh, definitely at a, a vulnerable crossroads. But we still need to have a longer-term discussion about what our relationship with China is and what the world's relationship with China is. How do we actually integrate them? How do we ensure that there's a fair playing field? And how do we uh, focus less on bringing back the the industries of the past and being leaders in the future? I think we need to look back to Is this to Chinese when we water realize... torture for us, though? I mean, are we just is this it, Chinese well, it... water torture? We're going to be doing this all year. Can we get out of this this quarter? I mean, can, the, can we solve something and get together on some sort of an agreement or agree to agree later something? Or is it just going to keep going That's on? exactly what the, the Chinese want, is to, us to think in a quarterly mind frame when they're thinking in terms of millennia. Um, so that's the that's It feels the like millennia. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they There's your title for tonight, they, Harry. It feels it like feels millennia. It feels like millennia. Yeah. Yes, sir. No, but they, it, it's, a, it's that question we're going to have of it, the same way our country, and I think I spoke with this on a, a podcast before the holidays, where it's, how did we respond to things like Sputnik or how did we respond uh, to Pearl Harbor or other things that said, look, this is how we change our mindset as a country and our relationship with the world and how we approach it? Because I think the Chinese have been very smart and understand that the, the U.S. system is very good at dealing with heart attacks, but not high blood pressure. So make sure Dan that Mahaffey the, the change the is slow and calm. They, they get that. Thank you so much. What a great answer. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of Presidency in Congress and the senior political analyst contributor for The Farcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us again this week. We will be back with you next week. I will be in Washington, D.C., shivering along with everyone else, uh, broadcasting for chat from Chatter, the fabulous studio up in Friendship Heights. Please come and join us next week. It'll be burger night at Chatter. Uh, terrific with my friends uh, Gary Williams and Tony Kornheiser. Hope you can come and join us. Uh, for the Farcast, I thank you so much for being with us. I'm Michael Farr. Thank you for listening to the Farcast. We enjoy making the show for you every week. We'd like to remind you that if you think you've heard specific investment advice to buy or sell any security, you haven't. The Farcast is for informational purposes, and, well, we hope you enjoy listening it as much as we enjoy making it. Please consult with a financial professional before you're making any investment decision. If we can be of help at Farr Miller in Washington, please give us a call. Join us next week on The Farcast as Michael welcomes back former Assistant Treasury Secretary, Principal of Hamilton Place Strategies, and one of the smartest, also one of the nicest guys in Washington, D.C., Tony Fratto.